Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. In this episode, I speak with Eric Davis, who has written numerous articles and books, including the acclaimed cult classic about the intersection of information technology and religious experience, Technosis. For the past eight years, Eric's been hosting the Expanding Mind podcast, where he interviews people famous and not so famous on the subjects of consciousness, spirituality, and psychedelics. If you value these kind of conversations and would like to show your support, there are a few ways that you can help. The simplest is to leave a positive review on iTunes, which will help other people find this podcast. You could also share it with the people in your social network. Another way to show your support is to become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash Brian James Teaching. Membership starts at just $5 a month, and supporters gain access to dozens of yoga practice resources that I've been developing over the past few years. There are hours of vinyasa yoga sequences, breathwork, chanting, and guided meditations to help you develop a life-supporting and life-enriching home practice. If you have any suggestions for future guests on the Medicine Path podcast, please send me an email at medicinepathyoga at gmail.com or drop me a line on social media. 
I'm particularly interested in helping to amplify the voices of women, indigenous teachers, and people of color, who I feel are greatly underrepresented in the current conversations about spirituality and consciousness. Well, that's all for now, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy this meeting on the medicine path with Eric Davis. So I'm speaking with Eric Davis, who's a a writer, a radio host and podcaster and a speaker. And I would just want to say thanks for taking the time to meet with me, Eric. It's really cool to have a conversation with you after listening to you in my earbuds for so many years. Yeah, wonderful. It's great to be here. <laughs> uh, so I guess where I wanted to start is um, through listening to your podcast, you know, I've heard bits and pieces about your exploration of psychedelics, yoga, meditation, but I wonder if you could take us back and fill in some of that picture of how you got started down these various paths. Well, I like to, yeah, it's, it's fun to reflect on, on where this came from in myself, because it, it seems like at least the, the impulse came very early, almost as if it was kind of part of my, my temperament. Uh, but certainly the, the first kind of cultural exposure with a lot of these currents, um, occurred in, uh, in high school, uh, when I was growing up in the early eighties in, uh, Southern California, a uh, place called Del Mar, uh, which is just north of San Diego. And, you know, I like to describe it as uh, it was kind of like growing up in the in the kind of uh, ruins of the spiritual counterculture. You know, it's like the, the 70s were still sort of present uh, in, in our space time at that place. And, and, and at that point, you know, there was like hippie, uh, flea markets and there were lots of uh, spiritual communities, Hare Krishnas and people, um, you know, the, the Grateful Dead were playing and that was a place to touch in with the kind of psychedelic uh, legacy. And it just so happened in a way that, that me and my friends uh, were just really into kind of 60s stuff. So we were sort of like retro, even, you know, we, mm. we liked some punk rock and we listened to the talking heads and stuff, but we also really liked um, music from the, from the 60s and 70s and kind of dressed and sort of played that game. And part of that also involved a lot of reading. We were, we were readers and um, the used bookstores were stuffed with like all this marvel. I mean, I wish I could go back in time and, you know, collect all the Rajneesh books that cost 50 cents then <laughs> and, you know, go for a pretty penny now. Um, but so we, I, I really immersed myself in, in reading through the kind of popular literature of the spiritual counterculture. So for me, the, the currents of, of yoga, of meditation, of psychedelics, of magic, of uh, shamanism, all of those things for me are kind of filtered through my own generational sense of, of coming just a notch after the counterculture. So I kind of see it all through a sort of countercultural lens, even though my studies and my practices, you know, then opened up through time. So I'm you know, I came to be wrestling with Zen texts and the whole tradition of Buddhism and, and, you know, much, a, a much broader historical frame. My, my, my core sort of filter is through that, that countercultural handoff. Like I felt like I was getting transmissions 
more from the hippies than from the Roshis. Mm. Uh, and that kind of set me going. And basically I just never stopped being interested in that stuff. I'm, I may have veered a little farther away from it in practice for some time when I went to university uh, and then moved to New York. But, you know, even then I was already getting back into martial arts and meditation and I never stopped taking psychedelics, although I did them less frequently uh, for, for quite a while. Uh, so it was always just kind of part of my, my thing. And then as I became a freelance writer, I decided to start writing about this stuff. So I had, I developed a kind of participant observer relationship to a lot of subcultural, countercultural, uh, mystical, occult currents and trends and tendencies. Uh, so I was able to sort of both think about it and kind of bring my, my intellectual chops into relationship with these cultural spaces and practices and experiences that I was also very interested in and engaged personally with uh, throughout. So it's, it's been an interesting ride. I mean, it's very much like some anthropologists talk about particip you know, participant observer, being a participant observer. And so I kind of feel like I'm a participant observer in these uh, currents and have been for a while. And since I sort of know a lot about the counterculture, the 60s and 70s, there, I have a sort of nice like 50-year arc of understanding how these things have come and gone, how they've interacted with more mainstream or popular culture, uh, highs and lows, uh, you know, problems, possibilities. So it's a, it's an, it's a pretty rich field. Um, I'm really happy that I, that I focused on it. Yeah. And that's, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk with you about specifically, because you've been someone who's been observing and commenting on consciousness exploration for at least a few decades now. And um, coming from that counterculture background, I'd love to get your take on what I see as a growing conservative approach to spiritual practice and psychedelics. Like, the you know, the wild spiritual mystics of the 60s, like the Das brothers, like Ram Das and Bhagavan Das, they've kind of been replaced by the Harris brothers, people like Dan and Sam Harris, who are uh, very conservative kind of guys. And, you know, the heroic dose of Terrence McKenna, it's been replaced with uh, microdosing in Silicon Valley. So I just wonder if um, if that's just something that I'm perceiving because that's what the mainstream has latched onto now, or do you think that we're missing out on some integral part of this whole exploration? That's the side of the wild mystic, you know? Yeah, those are. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to unpack in that one. Um, I think you're you're right in noting uh, what you, what you could call a kind of conservatism. Um, and that's it's obviously bound up with the way in which these things are being mainstreamed now, uh, because in order to penetrate mainstream culture, there has to be a, a reason we're doing these things. You don't you can't just do them for themselves. So part of it is that just as mainstream culture, you know, modern capitalism is dominated by you know, ideas of efficiency, of productivity, of you know, getting the most out of yourself, of kind of being a uh, uh, an you know, self entrepreneur who's sort of making their own way through things, and 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 a lot of emphasis on on uh, on, on productivity, especially that you you're, you're going to see you know mindfulness makes sense in that headspace because it 
you know, helps you deal with stress. It helps you focus at work. It helps you, you know, overcome uh, cognitive deficits. It, uh, it it increases your you know ability to uh, be aware of what the, your your fellow workers are interested in to to support teamwork, et cetera, et cetera. There has to be some kind of pragmatic reason, uh, and from that position of pragmatism where there's a reason we're doing these things, we're doing yoga because it makes us feel this way or that way, or because it helps us deal with the stresses of modern life, as opposed to practicing yoga out of a, out of a quest, out of not knowing, out of a desire to see or a curiosity. It's, it's practicing for a reason. And that wildness you talk about with, with characters like, like Bhagavan Das especially, but Ram Das as well, even though Ram Das's work in the 70s is very sensible in some ways, that, that it's, it's about how to live this life, how to, how to integrate it into ordinary life, how to improve ordinary life to some degree, how to deal with neuroses, et cetera, et cetera. It's still part of a, a broader quest whose endpoint is not the satisfied and productive self of modern capitalist culture. So mm-hmm. part of that then in order to make that shift, and you see this, I think very obviously with psychedelics now where it's much more visible. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people who have been practicing Buddhism and, and yoga for a while. Haven't really been so vexed by the memories or flashbacks of the wilder, uh, periods of, of the 60s and 70s, but that's not true with psychedelics. You know, as psychedelics enter the mainstream, as the ideas of microdosing, grow, you know, uh, grow, and those, that again is associated both with psychological health and with productivity, with doing your job, with getting uh, innovation and getting creative insights. So, as microdosing happens, and as uh, psychedelics are more and more reframed as medicine, which means they heal psychological maladies, heal uh, diseases or conditions like PTSD. Uh, and so they're, they're seen as, as medicines in the Western sense rather than an indigenous sense. As in a Western sense, they're seen as medicines. In order to make that happen, in order to make it work with regulators, with the public, uh, with you know the donors, with the institutions of the universities that are doing this research, in order for those things to all go forward, they have to suppress and recode and it's to some degree deny the weirder, wilder legacy of the '60s. So you find a lot of people say things like, "Oh, you know, um, you know, back in the, the psychedelic research stopped in the 1960s, and now it's back." Mm-hmm. And you're like, no, it didn't stop. It just went underground. Uh, so there's a there's a concerted effort right now to to mostly suppress the underground while keeping some of the the flavor and juiciness uh, around. But the the kind of uh, I think deeper engagement or more extreme engagement with these experiences, both psychedelics and meditation and whatever, where people are just pushing themselves, where they're throwing themselves in chaotic, confusing, potentially dangerous situations and environments with crazy gurus or taking too much drugs or doing it with, you know, in collective uncorked situations, that whole legacy of the weird and the wild in some sense needs to be, if not erased, then at least, Push to the side um, in order for this mainstreaming process to happen. 
And, you know, it's, uh, you know, I'm kind of, uh, whatever, I, I have two minds about it. You know, I could, I could kind of, uh, you know, one mind is recognizes this is just what happens with history. This is what happens when things enter the mainstream. And since I do believe that overall, I mean, I have some problems with this. We could talk more about that. But overall, I think it's a good thing for more people to have access to yoga and to meditation and to psychedelics that I think per, I think it's likely that overall more people benefit there is more happiness and perhaps society itself begins to shift in positive ways by by mainstreaming these things and if part of the cost of mainstreaming is to sort of put these other legacies to the side you know on a pragmatic realistic level I'm okay with it like okay if that's what you guys need to do to do this, whatever. I think you're wrong in some ways, like some of the things you say, like, and I'm ta- thinking here particularly about certain promoters and certain people who, who you know, go out of their way to fashion, a kind of very market savvy, very consumerist vision of these powerful transformative technologies. You know, that, that irks me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, I think as two, two things. One, as a historian we're in danger of forgetting the re, you know the legacy we're, we're in danger of forgetting where these things come from in the west for the most part i mean goes back before the counterculture but even then most of them are pretty weird people that that really these things that we're tasting are plug into uh some very interesting heretical bohemian anti-authoritarian currents inside of the West and that we, by, by, by turning aside from these countercultural legacies, we kind of forget about that, which I think is just wrong because I'm into history. I believe that we, 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 one of the best ways to navigate the chaos of our, our current moment is to remember, you know, to, to, to resonate within uh, currents that have come before us. Mm -hmm. So, but that, you know, that's a, per, that's a personal thing. Let me just say one, one other thing, the other mm-hmm. factor, and then we can, you know, I know I've laid, laid out a, a lot of stuff here. <laughs> and this is a little bit more, I think, a serious argument is that in sacrificing the wild, the uncontrolled, the chaotic, the dangerous, the crazy or potentially crazy in doing that, we actually do, or we cut off spiritual possibilities we cut off psychological possibilities. We cut off cultural possibilities that we may need to, we may need now more than ever. And, and that's, you know, a gut feeling. It's a perspective. It's not a hard and fast rule that I'll argue for or a law, but it's, it's increasingly how I feel. Well, you know, I think you actually could make an argument for it because as uh, yoga and meditation and now psychedelics have become more mainstream and more accessible to everyday people, not just the outsiders who go looking for it, um, but it's being, you know, now offered in the marketplace. So as they've become more popular and people are utilizing these technologies more, people aren't actually becoming happier. 
and more well-adjusted, you know, and we can look at the stats for that. You know, it's like the, both curves are rising at the same time, the interest in these practices, but then also the degree of depression, anxiety, addiction in our culture as a whole is increasing along with that curve. And so I think there's an argument to be made that in the mainstreaming of these things, uh, in that leaving out of some of the uh, essentials of these practices, the, the deeper practices, that something integral is being lost and maybe they're being made ineffectual through that mainstreaming process. You know, to make them more accessible, are we actually losing the thing that make them effective? Wow, you know, that's a really, I'm glad you said that so directly because I've sort of been thinking around that and maybe was a little hesitant about going going all the way with it. But I, I think, you know, it's funny in the last couple of months, this is even starting to appear in the mainstream. Like there's there was an article in the New York Times op-ed, some social psychologists going, hey, uh, corporate managers, uh, you may want to hold back on the mindfulness seminars because they don't necessarily work very well. <laughs> that was interesting. And then there was one that was like, I can't remember what it was, but it was, a, I think, a pretty a reasonably rigorous you know, study about uh, ego inflation in, with, with yoga and meditation and uh, some of the issues you're talking about, about people not, not being happier. And, you know, I, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's so obvious with, with yoga, it's the most obvious, uh, I, I think. I mean, psychedelics. Yeah, Cause are it went, obvious. it went mainstream first. Right. So I think like we can track the progress of yoga being mainstreamed and now see echoes of that in the psychedelic world. Like a lot of the same patterns are emerging. I think that's right. I th and, and yoga is also more, more obvious because of the the role of the body and then the image of the body. So that, that, you know, at, you know, like, you know, even when in the good days of yoga journal, when it was a really great magazine, which went through a really, you know, you, there was still like a lot of sort of mediation through the body and therefore through the youthful body, through the beautiful body, through the fit body, through the strong body and all of those sort of elements, which are, you know, reasonable things to want. They're delicious things to enjoy. Uh, uh, but there's a certain way that that be, m makes it easier, even more kind of consumable or, con you know, more of a, of a consumer item. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating, you know, problem because this is sort of what capitalism does. So uh, in a way, the, the fringiness and the weirdness of these practices for a long time enabled quite a large number of people, I mean, aspects of huge generations to you know, have their own markets, even their own kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, yoga was part of the marketplace in the 1970s. It was in the 1950s. It was just a very small marketplace and, you know, a reasonably underground one. And now that it's like all markets are sort of woven into one, you know, great chaotic octopus, um, that it's, it's, it's like, you can't sort of separate things, uh, as much. And, and I've been watching it just as a practitioner who do, I, and I tend to go to classes because I'm sort of lazy on my own. You know, if I can sit an hour a day, I'm already ahead and like to add a whole yoga practice on top of that is I don't quite have the discipline for. So I go, I go to a lot of classes and also I kind of like it because I, I mostly work at home. I, I'm a solitary worker. So I just like being around people, even though I don't end up talking to people very much because 
the kind of community side of it doesn't doesn't really seem to work for the most part anymore, at least for me. Uh, but I've been around a lot of it. So I've seen so many teachers and I've seen all these different ways that people have balanced um, kind of pragmatic uh, desires or sort of, you know, uh, ego desires and v- gestures towards spirituality, towards what that, whatever that means, whether it's chanting or meditating or, you know, br- attention. Uh, and it, it, yeah, it's, a, it's very interesting to me. I mean, I think one element of, of this whole conversation is just how you, how you talk about suffering, how you think about suffering and, you know, accepting that suffering is part of the picture and will be throughout and um, the ways in which that should limit your fantasies about power and sex and, you know, agency and control and all of these things that, you know, our egos want more of. And there's a lot of lip service paid towards to these non-egoic perspectives but they're they're pretty uh, they're pretty light <laughs> for the most part, uh, and I'm not sure that I can imagine how that would actually start happening in a yoga class or you know even a yoga training regimen. But the teachers themselves, you know, by the time you you've been doing this seriously or you think of yourself as a yoga teacher, I'm surprised how how naive a lot of p- people are about work and the spiritual tradition they're a part of, and they quote Patanjali, but they don't really think about it. And you know, there's there's a lot of it is just kind of also the dumbing down, you know, thing that, that happens as things go mainstream uh, as well. In terms of psychedelics, though, it's interesting to think I'm not really sure what it's going to look like. You know, that it may, you know, I don't know. It's really it's a it's a funny one. I think we're going to hear a lot about, you know, microdosing and improving, you know, efficiency and innovation and you know, improving healing and all that. That's great. I mean, healing's part of what we, what we do. Uh, but it's, it's, it's hard to tell because, um, with psychedelics, you have this, the other factor, which is that, you know, a lot of people are, are doing ayahuasca. A lot of people are, are, you know, really some very mainstream folks are diving into what, to my mind is the deep end of the pool. Now they may have their own experiences that aren't like mine, but this is not, we're not talking, you know, microdosing uh, 20 mics of LSD. You know, we're talking, you know, sometimes really big, disorienting, terrifying, completely bizarre, supernatural experiences that people who are not coming from the counterculture, not coming from these, from from a worldview where those things are valuable necessarily they just hear it's a good idea or they're suffering someone tells them everyone's doing it now it's the trendy thing so let's go for it and i I still don't really understand exactly how those things you know go together for people so uh, you know i would like to think that the the weirdness is strong enough that that it's going to modulate the attempt to make these things completely or you know more and more mainstream and and palatable uh i would like to think that but if you listen to what people are saying if you look at the discourse in the mainstream you know it's certainly not about these more uh you know these wild and woolly features yeah for sure and i just wonder if that's just um the way 
it's always been and the way it'll continue to be that the people who are actually diving into the deep end are always going to be the minority, always going to be the outliers, because they always have been, um, whether they were the the shaman using various plant medicines or the Hatha yogis living on the outskirts of society. And so now it's just like the the boundary between those two worlds has become more permeable. And some of the wild mystic life is seeping into the mainstream, but uh, that diving deep is never going to actually be mainstream just because of, I think, people's willingness to completely let go, to look into these questions about life very deeply and to... Because you kind of, if you want to go deep, you have to make it your life and you have to kind of step outside of uh, the mainstream culture. And so for me, there's also this acceptance of, uh, and this is like something that I've been coming around to more and more as I think about why what I'm offering as a yoga teacher isn't isn't gaining the traction uh, of someone who is offering something that looks really sexy and, um, you know, physical like physical aspiration kind of things or lifestyle aspiration things, you know, like be a yoga teacher and teach in all these beautiful resorts around the world and all that kind of thing. Um, so for me, it's like this like growing acceptance that maybe these two things will always remain kind of separate worlds. Um, and, you know, I think about like mainstream people like Michael Pollan, who you had on your podcast recently and, so he he had a few experiences with ayahuasca, but I feel like he was just basically dipping his toes into the deep end and not really diving in um, to see what the whole experience uh, could possibly be, you know. And it's something I actually wanted to ask you about because you did have him on your podcast. And so his new book is called The New Science of Psychedelics. And that title triggers me a little bit because... I feel that indigenous people have been studying psychedelics in, an, in a really empirical way for hundreds or thousands of years, and that even the Westerners who have had access to these things since the 40s and 50s and 60s have also been conducting scientific research and been developing uh, their own ways of working with it and understanding them in a healing way. So I find it like a little, I don't know, arrogant or naive to think that this is like a brand new science that's emerging now. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can see, I understand your feelings uh, exactly. And, but part of it has to do with what we mean by science. And uh, I have, you know, it's a big, big topic, but I, I think it's fair to say that what, um, well, it's 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 a it's a complicated one, and so I, I think it's like people will say science as a way of going. Even our mainstream university research funded PhD world of science is coming to recognize the value of these things. Now, that was true some in the fifties and sixties already. So, in that sense, it's not true, um, and it's also true that uh, I'll talk about indigenous stuff in a moment. But it's also so true that um, even in the underground in the 70s and 80s and 90s, there was a lot of capital S science that went down, meaning people were mm. researching. They were researching 
you know, grow methods. They were researching, researching extraction methods. They were even trying to figure out what the heck is going on in ayahuasca. Like it was not clear the whole, you know, uh, MAOI suppression and what was it was doing, what was not clear to, to Schultes, for example. And it took a while to kind of develop that. And, and that in many ways is an underground story. In fact, some of the first important literature on precisely the role of of the MAOI inhibition in relationship between the, the DMT containing plant and the, and the, uh, the Banisteriopsis vine goes to William Burroughs of all people. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a fascinating story. So there's a part of the underground that is actually doing capital S science, except, and this is an important thing to remember that you can make the argument in a more, uh, like a kind of like a sociological way, that science doesn't really happen unless there's a scientific body of authority and institutional power to declare it science. That's part of what science is in our contemporary world. I'm not saying it should be this way. Ideally, science is the pursuit of knowledge. And obviously, amateurs can contribute to science. In astronomy, they contribute all the time. And they're, you know, that's real science. So it's, there's, there's some gray areas. But overall, and particularly when we talk about anything that's controversial, like psychedelics or like, you know, uh, ancient a Asian practices that are supposed to make you, quote unquote, enlightened, like what the heck, that doesn't really fit into a modern, a modern enlightenment point of view. In order for those things to be recognized, they have to be, they have to be acknowledged, not just in terms of developing new knowledge, but of being approved and institutionally circulated through those you know, powers uh, and authorities in society that can stamp them as science. So when he says that, that's what he's talking about. And that's what people are responding to. That's, you know, if someone is suffering from PTSD or, you know, their, their, their mother has cancer and she's terrified and they're like, oh, my God, like, what are we going to we got to do something? you're going to feel better about these possibilities because science has given that stamp. Now, the thing about that I've learned, you know, is looking at how society works, you know, from a sociological point of view is everybody defends their interests. Everybody defends their power all the time. And, you know, in a, in the power struggle between mainstream institutions and mainstream media and, you know, the underground or the, the you know passionate crazy individual practitioner those you're gonna lose <laughs> you know i mean you're not gonna lose like you're gonna get gonna prevent you from pursuing your life but in that kind of balance and you, and you were talking about it precisely just in terms of being a yoga teacher and what story you're presenting people how you're modeling what does it mean to be a serious yoga practitioner what you're quote-unquote selling uh to people the inevitable brand that you have even if you don't want to have a brand uh, you get into these kinds of kinds of issues. So I I totally agree with you that the idea that we're we're just now you know discovering all these marvelous things is not true. There's some stuff we're getting through neuroscience that is very interesting. I'm a, you know I'm a fan of neuroscience. I think it's often misinterpreted, particularly in the mainstream. But it's it's very worthwhile stuff. Uh, but but yeah, I mean there, there there's clearly a kind of passing uh, passing of the torch and. Um, I think it's important for us to remember how much wisdom comes through uh, indigenous, you know, long, long centuries, if not millennia of indigenous practices, uh, you know, 
whatever the brew in ayahuasca the 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 uh the the, the you know proper the, the what what works as a social container all of that kind of aspect of it as well and that's another really important part about the 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 distortion that's introduced by thinking of these things as science is that it ignores the the cultural factors that are always part of psychedelics you know the core core message of psychedelics or, or axiom is set and setting right your mindset which means your expectations your thoughts your concepts the social programming you've received and the setting the environment which doesn't just mean the physical environment but it's also the cultural space the the invitation what's suppressed what's what's accepted what's allowed what's desired in any given space you know, a Grateful Dead concert hall versus a, you know, therapist's office with a red rose sitting on the table. You know, these are very different kinds of settings that that ask for certain kinds of experiences. And while you can't reduce psychedelic experience to set and setting, you cannot get there without them either. And that means that there's always a cultural story, a set of expectations, a narrative, symbols, imagination that are that is constructing the experience itself. So mm -hmm. science to be science needs to pretend that that's not true, that mm -hmm. you can have an objective study that you can do a, a, a properly double blind study, et cetera, et cetera. But psychedelics screw up that, uh, that rule. They actually aren't quite, quite, uh, a studyable, uh, in that tr traditional objective way because of their the nature of them and so you get already get into a slippery place where you're like not quite talking about science and so some of what we're seeing in psychedelic science is actually a certain kind of mysticism in the guise of objective science and i'll give you a concrete example the the johns hopkins studies uh, you know, the, the, the fame, the famous one in 2005, I think it was about psilocybin, that psilocybin can occasion classic mystical experiences. So you're like, Oh, okay. What does that mean? And you go through, there's a literature of like, what is a mystical experience? And if you actually go and think about that literature historically and critically, you see that it's really one particular kind of interpretation of what people mean by mystical or religious experience there's a lot of different ways to talk about these things mm -hmm. but there's one particular way of interpreting it that has been very important to psychedelics namely perennialism the idea that at the you know you boil it all down everybody has within them the capacity of experiencing oneness and oneness and a, and a kind of absolute uh, connection that tends to be not be associated with persons so not like meeting god not recognizing that god loves you which is another kind of mystical experience instead it's achieving oneness and this is a certain kind of model and it develops certain kind of psychology and they use those psychological measures in order to do studies like they did at johns hopkins and i really admire their study it's an interesting one i mean inside psychedelic underground we knew this since the 60s but uh you know still you know good on them but it is true that in some ways they are using the rhetoric of science and objectivity to ground not just religion, but a particular idea of what mystical experience is. So science is funny that way. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but in the original John Hopkins studies, did they not take um, 
uh, ordained ministers or priests to a church on Good Friday? Wasn't that part of the setting? That that was not the Hopkins study. That's the original 1960s Walter Penke Good Friday experiment. So that was when they did, essentially it was the same study, but uh, Penke's study it was seen as being not having good controls, not being too much. Da, da, da. I mean, there were some, you know, they, they didn't do it as well back then because they didn't do psychological studies with as much quote unquote rigor as they do now. So, in some sense, it was just a repeat. And it was true that he, that back in the Good Friday experiment, that, that was uh, Marsh Chapel experiment, I think is another name for it, that uh, they were religiously minded people. Uh, and you know, so that obviously is part of the thing. And if, I mean, you know, I think that if we looked at what happens with the Johns Hopkins, where these are people who are not familiar with psychedelics, but they did have some opening and, you know, uh, uh, I can't remember exactly how they filtered it, but there was, you know, they were definitely open towards the idea of mystical experience. Um, someone also, so I think Paulin pointed out in a very interesting way that, that the psychedelic researchers in, the United Kingdom, who are also giving big doses, report far fewer, quote unquote, classic mystical experiences than in the United States, which totally makes sense because the United States is a much more religion mad country. We are all working in good and bad ways in the shadow of William James and the varieties of, of religious experience and the idea that religious experience is available to everybody. And it's much, much more important to the history of the United States than it is to you know, the United Kingdom for centuries. So it makes sense that you'd, you'd see that shift. But that shift, the fact that there's a difference there, shows you that what we mean by religion or mysticism, that side of psychedelic experience has much more to do with culture and psychology and expectations and stories and images and narratives and symbols than it does with the nature of our brains. Yeah, for sure. And I guess for me, to use your phrase, the passing of the torch to uh, capital S science, like institutionalized science, in that passing of the torch, I think that the light is being obscured to a great degree because with psychedelics, if we think that setting has as much importance as the mindset, well, taking someone, taking a, something like ayahuasca, out of the jungle, its natural setting, and giving it to someone in a clinical setting, or something like iboga, which is actually happening. So um, iboga has been turned into a pill that people take in a clinical setting, hooked up to EKG monitors and everything. And is the same, like, is the whole experience actually possible within that? So then we have to ask, what is actually being studied? Are you actually able to study the thing outside of its natural context and its historical context? Or are you studying something completely different now? Like, have you kind of created something new, um, but then it's being promoted as, you know, this is the effect of this fungus or this plant. Uh, we know it definitively because we've exerted all these controls on the situation. But I think they're actually like missing a huge part of what's available in those experiences. Well, you know, here's, here's an interesting one where, where while I, I understand where you're coming from, I do tend to think about things uh, somewhat differently in, and here, here's, I'll, I'll make an analogy rather than talk about psychedelics. We can come back to it, which is um, looking at like the history of, of Buddhism. Now, nobody's going to argue 
that Tibetan Buddhism is real deal Buddhism. You know, no one's going to say like, oh, those guys, they came through, they're clowns, they're, they're distorting it, they don't, they don't have the real story. But at some point in the history of Tibet, they weren't Buddhists. They were something like what we would think of as shamans, or they have a shamanic, magical, pagan, uh, animist society that was super intense with all sorts of demons and crazy practices and skulls and all this stuff. And then at some point they encounter Buddhism. You know, people start coming up, they start talking, you know, it's really complicated. We don't really know. We'll never know the story. Uh, but as Buddhism came from India, both Tantric and, and what we think of as Mahayana Buddhism came into Tibet, it starts to change. And it changes because there's new sets and settings. There's new connections being made. And if you were an Orthodox Indian pundit, you might look at what was happening in Tibet and go, these guys are clowns. They're totally distorting it. They're missing it. They're not, it's not the real deal. You need, you know, you need to have practice in its official Orthodox setting in order to really understand it. So it's sort of an elaborate uh, analogy to kind of make the point that if we're talking essentially about, let's, let's just call them religious experiences, um, experiences that can have healing effects. They can, uh, enlighten us. They can, uh, bring us into a relationship with the divine. They can, uh, whatever, increase the enchantment of our life, whatever that if we're talking about religious experiences, that there's always a sort of translation and a shift and a mutation and a loss of the kind of pure and original final source or ultimate source. And so in a way, that story about there's a, there's a natural condition that's back in the jungle or back in Gabon and that what we're doing now is distorting and losing, it's technically true. But in a way, that's what we're doing. That's what you and I are doing. Even if you and I, and I mean you personally, me personally, have done our damn best to read, to travel, to connect with the authentic source, we are mostly involved in a translation process that introduces all sorts of distortion. Uh, sure, so, but it's, it's a matter of degrees, right? Like, yeah, So totally. we still acknowledge uh, the natural origin of all of these practices, whether we're talking about uh, Tibetan bon shamanism or... Uh, ayahuasca use in the jungle or iboga in Gabon. Um, so we're still acknowledging the source and we're maybe trying to retain as much of that as is possible in that appropriation process. Uh, and, that, and that's a way different than someone taking it all out completely, you know? So I, it, there's like degrees there. I don't think it's cutting yeah. down. No, I think I, I, I think I see what you mean. You're, you're, you're talking about the way, uh, well, that it just becomes a, a pill, you know, or it just becomes a, a substance. I mean, indigenous, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, indigenous, not just activists, but like academics or whatever, will like reject the idea that we can talk about peyote and what peyote does in the hearts and minds of human beings by talking about mescaline because mm -hmm. of course that's what the west is we go wow there's a 
there's an active alkaloid. We've, uh, you know, I isolated it and learned how to synthesize it in a lab. And now we can take it. And wow, these effects are great. And they're not that different than when you take a peyote, a little bit different, you know, some extra alkaloids. It's a little messier. So from a Western point of view, it's perfectly sufficient to talk about mescaline. And even if you're, if you're into mysticism, you go, there's something mystical about mescaline. Um, whereas from an indigenous context, often there is, that seems, that seems completely wrong that it's, that the plant is not, is not reducible to even its most active compounds, that it's a, it's a, it's a melange. It's a, it's a whole spirit even that, that, that we need to respect. So in some sense, that disjunct is going to be a part of the story as long as the West is involved, even even in the underground, because in the underground there's a lot of people who are who are more um, science oriented, more skeptical in certain ways, who aren't necessarily just going to take on the uh, you know an indigenous kind of perspective. Because if you look at the indigenous situation, that too is really complicated. So, for example, if you're uh, you know if you are from the place where peyote comes from you actually might not be that interested in the native american church because most people in the native american you know the native american church didn't ex exist until the early 20th century and it was based on a, a a kind of peyote cult that spread through indigenous communities in the southwest mostly well actually eventually all over in the late 19th century so those well, guys so, and it was like based on an addiction recovery method uh, it's yeah. Initially, I, it had less of the addiction part of it. It was more about cultural renewal. Uh, but that was, you know, the heat. The, there was a healing aspect of it. So, what do you do if you're, you know, from northern Mexico and this is where the peyote comes from? How do you even see these other indigenous people who will, who will at the same time argue for the sort of authenticity of it? So there's, there's, there's all these kind of complexities in it. And you know, the one of the problems is just it's just a basic problem is that complexities are irritating. You know, it's easier to tell a simple story that gets a simple, uh, the people hear it simply it's, it's report, reported in the media simply. So it's easier to say, Oh yeah. Uh, ayahuasca is actually just, uh, you know, harmaline and DMT and, and that we can analyze these in the lab and see how they affect certain parts of the brain. And we can maybe use them within that, context and i think you're right that something's lost but in, in a way it's not necessarily a bad thing and here, here's here's mm -hmm. the way that i've come to think about it one if it is the case that these things are healing and good as i said before this is what you're going to see to make that available to more people there's no there's no way around that i mean it might be done better it might be done worse these guys are better these guys are worse and so you know critics like us need to keep our stories going to try to influence that conversation as much as possible although i'm not i'm not sure there's much to do at this point because the cat's really out of the bag but there's another side of it that i think is also okay which is that it's not bad and it might even be good to be esoteric because if you keep up the old vision the wild and woolly the indigenous it to the degree that you can sort of connect with that in an authentic way whether by you know practicing with people or, or getting lessons directly or or even just kind of immersing yourself in a, in, a, in a worldview that's so contrary to the modern West, or whether it's just a kind of exuberant affirmation of 
the chaotic nature of like countercultural approaches that in keeping that alive, you may not make a lot of money. You may not be on the cover of yoga journal, but the spiritual potential of what you're doing not only isn't necessarily curtailed, it might actually be intensified. So I can imagine a situation where there's kind of a mainstream vision and people who don't come from these contexts can get into it and do it in a very kind of Western tool-based, unspiritual way. Mm -hmm. But some of those people will become unsatisfied with this or some of those people will wake up or some of those people will like meet somebody who's had these other kind of experiences. And then they might discover that there's this whole other world that never stopped of people who were talking about things, doing these things with much more multidimensional approaches. Uh, and that's just, I don't think that's going to be suppressed. I don't think it's going to be erased. It's just not going to get as much attention. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, I'm kind of describing my own career here, but <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, and, you know, and so, I mean, the, the, the good thing is that there is a, there are great rewards, psychological and spiritual in being a, er, an earnest value driven underground or, or esoteric group or, uh, you know, not popular, unpopular culture. Uh, there, there are bad things. You, you, you don't get, recognition you see lame things succeed uh there's <laughs> the pocketbook is not such in great shape and you run the risk of bitterness which is always the the bohemian trap number one <laughs> As you get old you get bitter and you're like God, i've been doing this for 30 years and these kids today da, da, da. so those are real traps but there's also a kind of you know a, a kind of power in that it's it, it's funny i want to i want to ask you about about being um a yoga teacher uh and how you you know, because you're a yoga teacher, you inevitably are modeling something that's more than just a, a physical practice. You're modeling an approach, an energy, a personality, a, a, an aesthetic. Um, and, you know, and you feel also the pressure or you see what other people are doing, you know, in that space. I mean, to my mind, it's like all the, the Instagram yoga, like all the yogis who shoot themselves and front of you know like uh, sacred sites doing this like you know sexy pose or whatever and how much it's driven by this kind of image consumption uh and i'm just like how do you deal with that like how do you think about it how do you go how do you bring you know if you have to have a brand for your business card if you have to pick the name of your studio like how do you bring these issues that we're talking about to bear on the 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 fact that you are performing that you are creating however authentic it is it's still creating a kind of theater uh that invites people in yeah well uh this has definitely been like a razor's edge that i've been walking since i started to teach um and i've only been teaching for about six years so i'm very much uh always developing you know i haven't um well i think i'm coming into the right balance actually because for for the beginning of my career as a teacher, I think what I tried to do was to make the practices of yoga very accessible to a wide range of people. You know, I was looking like my main mission was to just try to get everyday people practicing a little bit at home. And so the entry point was really uh, 
really simple, really accessible, very gentle. I didn't get into the esoterics of the practice, which is the thing that got me into it over 20 years ago, was that interest into the deeper mysteries. But I kind of like left out a part of myself in order to try to reach uh, a broad range of people who I know would benefit from a very simple breath and movement practice, for instance. Um, but then last year, I guess I just started to embrace my own inner mystic and to, I started to feel more comfortable with sharing the mo more esoteric aspects that I was really interested in that I'd found actually to be the, the juice of the practice for me. And so I've just been like owning that and kind of shifting things in the way I present them to bring more of that into it. And, um, that's even, you know, reshaping the name that I'm presenting things under now it's medicine path yoga. So there's a hint there at uh, medicine, you know, uh, medicine in a general sense, like something that's healing, but also uh, plant medicines, which have been a really integral part of my growth as a yoga practitioner and teacher. And of course, human being, you know, uh, married for the past 13 years have been really helpful. And it's been hard for me to, uh, to untangle the medicine work, the plant medicine work and the work with yoga over the past decade or so. Um, when I really started to focus in on these things to, you know, heal myself and be a better person, uh, I just could not unlink those two things because I couldn't see where one breakthrough came from. Uh, it wasn't just a specific experience because I had a daily yoga practice. So what was it? Was it the process of yoga, uh, an energetic yoga practice, not just doing asana for the sake of asana, but actually trying to engage with my own energetic system through the breath work and visualizations? Uh, or was it that big ayahuasca ceremony that I went to? I couldn't tell them apart. You know, I couldn't isolate one thing from the other. So for me, it's been like this natural evolution, um, really becoming more and more authentic with what I'm promoting out there. And it comes at a time when I see that, you know, as uh, interest in psychedelics is going up and uh, spiritual practices, I see a real benefit in showing how these things have always been interrelated, that the roots of yoga, you can't not talk about Soma. If you're not talking about Soma, <laughs> you're actually cutting out a huge part of the history of yoga. Um, and if you're taking away conversations around energetic centers, the chakras and breath work and all these things that have kind of been left behind in the mainstream of yoga, you're missing the whole picture. Um, and I also think that because yoga has its roots in entheogenic use, that it makes a perfect complement to the plant medicines that people are exploring as a way to understand, contextualize those experiences, but also then to integrate them into their life so that they have a ongoing healing effect. So it's not just a one-off that makes you feel good for a month or so, but then you fall back into your old patterns and your you know, view of reality. Um, because that's what I've seen happens with people. Um, and even people who, you know, I got my start with ayahuasca in the Santo Daimi church, where people who are tithing members of the church are doing daimi or ayahuasca uh, 
twice a month or sometimes more. And I think just their cycle of falling back into old patterns has just become compressed. Um, if there's not some sustaining practice in there that helps them to integrate and continue to stay open, you know, allowing energy to flow and all that stuff, you know? So it's become really important for me to, uh, to integrate those things or reintegrate them as they've been in my own life and to use my little tiny platform to put that out there. So if somebody's dissatisfied with yoga or their uh, retreat in the jungle, that there's someone out there who's talking about these things. And, you know, like I said earlier, coming to that acceptance that I'll never be mainstream and I actually don't care if uh, I make a lot of money. I just want enough to have a meager living, you know, um, the real, reward for me comes in my own uh, experience of life and just working with people in a really intimate way that can't happen teaching a room of a hundred people doing up dog down dog you know yeah i mean it sounds like you you found a wonderful path and i've you know i've seen some of the the, the material you've produced that that it talks about these connections and you know i think it's extremely valuable you know it's it's sort of and and even in more specific ways than just talking about integration you know that's one of the main things everybody talks about integration so it's, what does that mean it means you're somehow you take your experience you have extraordinary you have extraordinary experience you somehow use it or integrate it bring it into the ordinary in a way that keeps the ordinary from just re, you know repeating its own its own patterns and, and that's great but i i think there's something even more specific about at least the way you're presenting the connections between entheogens and yoga, yoga practice, there's a historical connection, there's a contemporary connection, but the, the place where one of the places where the connection happens is, is in the body and particularly this weird internal body, this energetic body that is kind of there and not there. Meaning like if you, if you measure it with the same, you know, the, if you measure with the kind of instruments that will show, you know, an electrical charge across the skin or will measure, you know, uh, chemical transformations inside the gut, you're not going to find anything. You're not going to find the chakra, mm-hmm. but it's right next. It's right there. And so for me, like the whole world of internal energy body of the maps, the nadis, the chi, the chakras, the Kabbalistic tree of life. I mean, there's all sorts of ways of organizing this kind of magical liminal zone that's that's partly matter and 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 what science would recognize as energy, and also something else, something imaginal, something uh, evocative, something that comes through tradition, through dream, through inspiration, et cetera, et cetera. And it's 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 finding like almost that that's the razor's edge in a way. Is, is where you, you're still doing something that, that makes sense to people in the pragmatic, concrete, physical way, and yet it's never re- reducible to that because there's something else that's in the room. There's something else that's kind of going on. And as you point out, you know, it's not just that, that you know, Amrita's in us. It's, in, it's right here. You know, and you, that's why you do headstands, man. There's a reason for it. <laughs> and that may be true. It may not be true. And that's not really quite the point. I think the point is, is there's no way to heal. There's no way to be, to expand as a person. There's no way to sort of explore the multidimensional possibilities of reality if you stay completely stuck in the flat land 
of physical matter and of, of uh, merely scientific ways of describing these things that are going on. So you, what you have is your, your body is like the best container to sort of begin to deal with these, these more squirrely, uh, uh, dangerous, evocative and seductive worlds of, um, you know, of magic or whatever, however you want to call that, that sort of other, uh, other world. So I, I, I think it's incredibly, you know, good work to, to focus on that and to recognize that it might not, you know, blow up and to be aware that you're going to always be in the shadow of a, of a kind of, you know, a super aggressive, uh, competitive, entrepreneurial grab for mind space for, you know, whatever. That's just part mm-hmm. of, you know, the picture. And I, I mean, your, your idea of the razor's edge, I think is, is, uh, is, uh, is really key. And the fact that you can bring these things together, um, in a way that other people aren't doing, uh, you know, I think, I think it, it feeds both, both sides, you know, it, it improves the, the yoga because you get these experiences that open things up and you see why you've been doing things. And then at the same time, it gives you a framework and a practice and a, a, a model of embodiment that can, that can ground these, uh, experiences and particularly, you know, turn them into a kind of, uh, daily practice. Cause I think it's very easy for people to just get blown out by the intensity and sublimity and, and then all the joy you feel. And then there's a little bit of ego inflation Well, there's ego inflation all the way through. You can always be <laughs> inflated, you know, that's I mean, one of the tricks too. How do you, uh, how do you bring people, uh, you know, how do you bring people down from the, the highs, which in, in some ways are, are, are where the healing happens. So it's a, that's a, that's a tricky one as well. Yeah. And I guess for me, like walking that razor's edge, it's about like, I only want to engage with marketing as much as I need to, to actually be findable. Um, you know, I don't want to convert anyone to any particular practice or way of thinking about these things, but I just want to be there so that when someone like, like I did, you know, 10 years ago, typed in a Google search bar when I was working in advertising in Toronto, uh, really becoming a heightened awareness of my own suffering. When I, out of desperation, typed in uh, shamanic therapy Toronto into the Google search bar and actually found a guy who was incredibly helpful to me and ended up introducing me into the Central Daimi Church. So I just want to be findable, you know. So that's like my way of, um, of balancing the, the, the marketing of myself as a brand and personality and all that, uh, to not get too enmeshed in that whole world. Cause it is hyper aggressive and I think, uh, draining of the life energy. And that's something that I want to promote by example is that we need to conserve our life energy in a world that's doing its best to suck us dry because our attention is the most valuable commodity. Um, and you know, Part of what happened for me last year was I spent three months in outside of Iquitos at an ayahuasca retreat center teaching yoga. And it was a complete experiment for me. Uh, I didn't really know what it was going to be like going into it. But what I found was that it was the most satisfying teaching experience I'd ever had because people would go to the ayahuasca ceremony 
and they would be put in touch with the subtler aspects of their body. They'd get to feel for themselves how energy is moving in like a really tangible, visceral way. And then so then when they would come to yoga class in the morning, I could talk about that and how the breath work and the postures are helping to open ourselves and do the same work that the ayahuascaros are trying to do, clearing energy blockages so energy can flow and we're more easy and stable and all that stuff. They could actually really understand what I was getting at. And I didn't have to cut through any ideas about yoga being about, you know, hyperflexibility and contortionism and all that stuff that has polluted the mainstream mind, you know? So I think they can really work together and that's how it's worked for me. Even in the early days, um, taking some cannabis before I did my yoga practice really sensitized me to, you know, on a physical level, the, the fascial structures of my body, how everything actually was connected viscerally and tangibly, but then also tuning me into what was happening maybe energetically and being really intrigued by that, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely you know, on, and I and I think this is the most, you know, hey, if 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 these things are being mainstreamed, we might as well bring them together. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and I mean, I I think about uh, uh, psychedelics and particularly ayahuasca, probably a little more in terms of, of med- meditation than than in yoga, just because that's a little bit more my my core orientation and i you know i can say the same things you're talking about like i i can't see where one one stops and 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 the other begins and um i think approaching psychedelic experience as a as awareness practices is is uh both very rewarding and also a a good hedge against the easy excesses that people can get in, involved in, you know, you know, believing their, their messianic experience or, um, you know, this kind of, you know, powerful ego inflation that looks like charisma and, uh, delusion, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can get, get trapped in, in, in these experiences. And, uh, I think awareness practices, with, which inevitably have a somewhat critical element, at least the way I experience of them, not all the time, but, but there's certainly an element of that, uh, is, are, are very good ways to, to modify and to guide and to actually literally move through these spaces uh, according to different logics. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are doing psychedelics, you know, you know, partly to heal or to feel better because we all kind of have these, we always have problems, we're always a little shadowed, you know, human beings are, a, are a, s- a sorry lot in some ways. Um, but there's also, I think just a desire for enchantment, the desire for marvels, a desire to, for a sense that, that it, the world isn't just this kind of gray, um, technological, uh, modern surface. And that desire for enchantment, I think is, re- is really powerful, but it really needs to be in, in relationship with other kinds of spiritual values like awareness and awakeness and, uh, compassion and, you know, other things that, that are, that are good to have in the, in the picture. Uh, and so I think that the, the, the melding of these different 
paths is is one of the most interesting things for people to, who are in the space to be doing right now is to figure out how do these things uh, connect together how you know how can that be taught or encouraged how how can be people be free to begin to you know explore and reconnect or connect uh, things that in, in some ways are still seen as being separate practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess the one thing that makes me think about when I listen to you is um, the, the spiritual practice that I've seen promoted the most in relation to psychedelic use is mindfulness. And I've always felt that mindfulness as it's been presented in the West is a bit of a trap and a bit dissociating um, and actually like quite a bit limited. Like I think it's a good maybe preliminary practice just to start to become aware that you have thoughts and that there is a, a deeper level that can observe those thoughts and things like that. But I don't think it goes far enough to, uh, to catalyze like a real healing process. Um, and I'm just wondering why you think that is like, why is it that something like mindfulness is, is more promoted in the psychedelic world than the, uh, the kind of participatory proactive energetic practices like tantric yoga or Qigong, things like that. Because I've, I've always seen that that's what the shaman are talking about. There's they're talking about energy when they're, when they're doing whatever it is they're doing, whatever modality that shows up as, but it's usually, they're not talking about problems of the mind. They're talking about too much mind being the problem and that uh, we have to clear things on a deeper, more subtle level in the energetic body to actually allow the mind to relax. Um, yeah. And I just feel that there's this, there's this focus on mindfulness and meditation and maybe not enough focus on uh, these practices that allow us to engage with our own energy and to clear ourselves and to stay open so that the, we don't have to really worry about the mind so much. The mind can just sort of relax into reality. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand what, what you're saying. Um, I, I mean, I could say, you know, a couple different thoughts. I mean, one is just it's just easier. It's just easier, you know, like, because when you start getting involved with like, you know, if you're just, if you, if you're like running a session and you're going to like have people you doing, you know, physical practice, you got to train them on the physical practices beforehand. You got to like, what's your idea? Is like everybody doing the same thing? Is it, does it have a tantric modality? What does that mean? You have to talk about chakras, blah, blah, blah. So it's easier just to go pay attention, you know? <laughs> uh, and, and it's, it's also like, it's something that everybody can, just do within their own their own zone, and it's something that people are are, are kind of familiar with. And, you know, that said, I, I for me the let's call it meditation or awareness practices are are not different than what you're describing in, in association with um, more physical energetic practices. Uh, I do believe that the way mindfulness is taught and the way mindfulness is practiced and the way Vipassana, some aspects of Vipassana are taught and practiced do lead to a kind of a dissociation, the sort of excess, uh, excessive noting, you know, the sort of constant kind of noting and detachment mm -hmm. from phenomena. That's not really what meditation is for me or has been for a very, very long time. 
although it still looks like meditation, it's still mostly awareness-based as opposed to explicitly energetic. Although I find that that being becoming very familiar with awareness in a in a present sense uh, that there's often a lot of intuitive information about energetic responses to things that are happening that it, it becomes obvious where something is located in your body or it becomes obvious that by breathing a certain way you can modify uh, the situation um, but that may just reflect my own very personal eccentric practice over, over the years and that at its heart was more meditation based than um visualization driven for example or using mantras or whatever although i've done some tantric stuff or whatever but uh so i i'm not really sure like i well i guess i want to say is like no i think that can work too but i understand what you mean you know and i and i i i think it's probably you know it's a lot easier also to talk to secular people about mindfulness than it is to talk to them about energy because as soon as you say energy like what do you mean energy (laughs) yeah then you're already like you're already in the woo zone i know i know and and, uh and but you would think that people having i you think that people having psychedelic experiences it's so obvious to me i mean that's in a way this is like one of the great questions it's like it's so clear that when you're on psychedelics that all of those model those energetic models are, are instantly available you know i mean you have energy you can see the shockers you can see the energy lines you can feel heat coming off your palms you can heal people you can put your foreheads together and you know bells are rung on you know mars i mean it's it's <laughs> so clear within the phenomenology that these energetic models have real coherence and that they're real tools that they they op, they they do they resonate they open up they they shift away they avoid you can you can uh, you know pin down darkness or avoid you know you can avoid things that are that are frightening if you're not up for it yet and and then with, when you're up for actually going into it you have energetic resources to kind of hold in relationship to that but all of that requires a sort of willingness to think imaginally to think magically to think esoterically. Uh, in terms that a lot of people just aren't going to do, you know, they're just not, it's too weird. It's just doesn't make sense. Um, so in that sense, I think it's just probably what I mean. It's just harder in a way to t- teach than mindfulness. Cause then everybody know, Oh, you just pay attention. Just stay awake, pay attention. Um, yeah, that's a good point that, um, as soon as you start to talk about energy or anything more subtle that, uh, you do put yourself in that other category the one that we've been talking about. Um, it's just, uh, it's kind of mind blowing to me that uh, people are able to ignore that or to be so resistant to that, that they could even go into an experience with ayahuasca or DMT or something and still not wake up to that and still come out of that and promote just, uh, you know, heady, you know, it can be really heady. Psychedelics yeah. can be, can be very, very heady, very, dis, very disembodied and, and detached and so can meditation i mean i think in that way in that sense you know meditation doesn't help uh and it it, it clearly doesn't like you were said to start it off at the beginning of this whole conversation is that you know something's not working because even though there's more mindfulness and more yoga and more psychedelic whatever is that people are are still really suffering and killing themselves and you know uh and, and not getting out of their uh you know, compulsive habits and addictions and all, all these kinds of things. And I think all of this, 
uh, all of this is clearly uh, is clearly related. Yeah, and I think um, it's something to do with the power of the cultural conditioning at this time too. That like it's like um, light practices just aren't going to break through that. It's just not enough. It's like tapping on a a rock with a little tiny hammer or something. It's just, it's not enough. The cultural conditioning is we're so surrounded by it and we're so influenced by it, especially in the technological, technological age that we need some like heavy practices if we really want to break through that. And I just don't think everyone's got that same level of desire to break out of their conditioning. You know, I think people have become very comfortable uh, in their maybe limited reality. And it's like, no, I'm just fine. You know, everything's good. Um, yeah. So I guess going back to that, like first thing we started talking about, it's like, there will always be the kind of the wild mystics and there'll be the mainstream people who might dabble in, in this stuff to a degree that's comfortable, but to not get out of that comfort zone. And I think it's just maybe accepting that's the way. And, and if we are offering something with a little more depth to just be out there and be available for people, should they come knocking on the door? Yeah. I think that's, that's about as far as you can get it. So, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. it's, it's a funny one. I have a, fr- a friend who's, who's after years of practice and uh, crazy way, you know, super psychonaut far out experiences, magic the whole the whole kit and caboodle is uh you know has has opened recently opened a studio with his partner um and so i've been talking to him a lot about about these these things and hopefully i'll get him on the on the show on on expanding mind you know pretty soon because we've been we've been talking about it he said one thing that was really interesting to me where he was like look if if we're going to be honest we have to acknowledge that it, it's just not clear if this makes people better or happier. It's mm-hmm. just not clear. The, the, the jury is out. Uh, and I say, so, so what does that mean for you? And he goes, well, you know, it means I'm, I'm not going to, you know, he's an, he's an Ashtangi, so he doesn't even have to talk that much. <laughs> so uh, it's much more about like the practice and just committing, you know, to a daily practice with a, with, with a, a fierceness that is, I think not the case with the way a lot, at least the way a lot of, yoga practice is presented. Um, uh, but he's, he just came around to the thing of like, you know, at the, in the end, I just, I've, I've received this practice and I'm going to pass it on and that's it. Mm-hmm. And in a way that what you, that position you just came to about like, you're going to, you know, make sure you're findable and be, have integrity and authenticity in what you're doing be willing to criticize yourself and be open for negative feedback. Um, you know, renew your commitments that, that, you know, keep, keep the thing going in a deep way. Like in a way that's the practice and all you really do is, is you got that kind of put it together in certain ways on your own. And now you throw it forward. And in a sense, that's all you can really do. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily know if it's going to, help someone. Someone might go crazy. Someone might kill themselves. Someone might, you know, you don't really know. Uh, and so I think to, 
it would be very helpful to have, <laughs> have things presented less as this is going to make you better. Mm-hmm. This is going to be your solution. This is going to be the, 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 the tool that fits in the lock or whatever it is, is just that sense of like, of just kind of in a way like commitment for its own sake, for, for having a practice to have a practice, to practice, to not just live and consume and emote, emote and all that, but, but to practice. Uh, and there's something about that. There's a coherence there that doesn't come from anything else. Uh, and, we in some ways distort its its true juice by linking it too quickly to ways that you want to improve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I uh, I warn people sometimes when they come to my class. I'll say yoga can ruin your life, but every life could use a good ruining every now and again. And it's definitely the caveat is that it's not going to make you feel better at first. It might actually make you feel worse, but then, you know, over the years you find kind of a a baseline of satisfaction and contentment that allows you to ride those waves of, uh, you know, difficulty and happiness and everything uh, with just more equilibrium. Uh, it doesn't make everything better in your life. It doesn't even help everything physically. It can't promise that, right? But uh, it can help you deal with all those things uh, in a way that's just steadier and more content. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here. <laughs> well, it's been uh, it's been really great to talk to you. Um, you're describing so much of my own experience, and it's really nice to have that reflected back from someone else who. Uh, is working in the same realms and has a few years on me, I think. So um, I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me and speak to my audience. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I'd say the same thing in terms of, uh, you know, the, that you're, that you're out there, you know, doing, you know, medicine work in the yoga context and, and, you know, again, the material you're presenting and just keeping the, you know, the story of, of Tantra alive, the history, you know, alive of understanding these things are in a, that if you think about it historically, Soma, the, you know, Tantric explosion in the late, you know, eight hundreds and what happens by the 1500s and the wandering sadhus and the whole history is a really, really good way of getting a handle on what does it mean as opposed to just saying, Oh, Patanjali, these traditions are thousands of years old. Let's go forward. You know, like it doesn't, that doesn't tell you anything, but like learning how to introduce the context and the variation and the things that are surprising or scary, you know, that like sadhus were frequently violent, for example, yeah. it's like, whoa, that doesn't fit. And you're like, well, sorry, it's true. It's in there. It's in there. It's part of the, you know, like that, that kind of thing, I think, you know, for me is makes all the difference. And so it was wonderful to see you include that as part of your, uh, part of your mission. Thanks, man. And I want everyone to go check out your podcast. You've got years of conversations archived with some really, really interesting people. Uh, and a lot of people who are unknown in the mainstream, but nevertheless have, really interesting things to say. Um, so it's an incredible resource that you've been building for, I don't know how many years you've been doing expanding mind uh, for eight years. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <Kind of crazy. laughs> 
it's crazy that you still have people to talk to. I mean, just... <laughs> they keep coming. It's good. That's, that's actually why I do it now. It's like this, I'm a, I'm a bit of a, of a isolate on my, on my own, but I have this sort of large circle of like peers, you know, I don't, you know, which is a really wonderful, uh, uh, wonderful feeling. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I started to do this. Cause like you, I, you know, I don't have a day job. Um, I'm at home working on my yoga stuff. And then, you know, four times a week, I go out and teach an hour long class, <laughs> maybe a workshop here or there, but I really uh, crave that connection to a wider community of people who are interested in all this stuff because um, it's such it's been such a big part of my life. And now we've got this ability to have conversations, you know, I'm in Montreal, you're in the Bay area and here we are. And I feel like there is a real connection and resonance there. And that's like super nourishing for me as another isolate, you know? Yeah, no, no, I hear it. I hear it. I'm, I'm, I was, I was very happy to do this. So, uh, keep up the good work as they say. Yeah, you too, brother. It's nice to uh, tune into your podcast every week. It's so regular too, which is nice. Excellent. So uh, do you have anything that you want to promote before we end this? No, just, you know, I, I keep keep keeping my podcast going. I got a book coming out next year uh, called High Weirdness, which is about psychedelics in uh, the 70s. It's definitely the, the wild and wooly stuff that we talked about earlier, uh, as opposed to the uh, neat and tidy um and that'll that'll be fun it'll be interesting to see what happens whether it's whether it challenges the ongoing discourse or whether they manage to just kind of like you know steamroll over it because it's it's the story they don't want to hear about uh but uh but it's been a lot of fun to do so yeah well another book that you contributed to zigzag zen uh was reissued not long ago so i think there is uh there are people out there who are interested in this stuff so for sure. Thanks a lot for doing your part in expanding the conversation. Excellent. All right, Brian. Thanks a lot. Bye. Right. Bye-bye. being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare it pays to be extra and united healthcare makes it easy with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they supplement your primary plan helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods so when it comes to covering your medical bills you can feel good about being a little extra visit uh1.com to find the health protector guard plan for you even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 